Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Last Monday, parts of Syria and Turkey were once again struck by a fatal earthquake, this time of a 6.4 magnitude. And this time, the epicenter was in Turkey, about 100 miles south of the epicenter of the first two massive earthquakes that hit just two weeks earlier. This latest quake killed at least eight people and injured hundreds more. Among those hurt were some residents who had just returned to homes that had withstood the first two series of quakes, only to be trapped in their collapse after the third. One video captured travelers in Hatay's airport crouching for cover through the tremors. And all this, even as rescue and recovery efforts from the first series of quakes continues slowly and painfully. The airport where we just heard those sounds of such horror and fear had reopened on February 13th after the first earthquakes split its runway in two. It had already become vital to both incoming aid and outgoing evacuations. More than 50,000 people in both Turkey and Syria, have been killed by the impact of these now three quakes and their aftershocks. With me now is Shirin Jafari, reporter covering the Middle East at The World. Shirin, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Now, it feels impossible that the devastation of the first few earthquakes could get even worse. Can you Tell us a bit about how the people in the region that you've spoken with are feeling now after this third quake. Well, Melissa, I mean, the aftershocks, as you say, continue and the people are already, you know, as you said, devastated by the but they continue uh, to be scared and there's a sense of panic constantly. Um, the head of Turkey's disaster and emergency management agency has said that, you know, they expect these aftershocks to continue for another two years. So imagine how people can plan for their lives when these aftershocks continue to take place. And they are, some of them are pretty strong, 5.6 magnitude uh, and so on. So they are pretty strong. The needs are huge. Thousands of people have been made homeless. They've been displaced. They have no jobs. They've lost their businesses, infrastructure like road and water and electricity. Those still need to be repaired. And, uh, you know, some of the most affected areas from videos that I've seen have turned into ghost towns because people have basically left. They've left to stay with relatives if they have, you know, places, other places to stay because their homes are just simply not livable. Uh, But again, you know, these aftershocks continue and the sense of panic continues. Now, you just mentioned the people that you've talked to. I know that you reached a resident of Idlib, Syria last Friday. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about him? 
Absolutely. So um, I reached uh, Mustafa Danon last Friday. He lives in Idlib City uh, along with his wife and two children. He has a, an 11 months old and a two-year-old. He told me before the war, he studied nursing and political science. But after the war began, he kind of switched into becoming this citizen journalist. He takes pictures and videos of uh, what is happening in his area, in his city, and then he shares it on social media uh, just to get the word out about what is happening in Syria. Uh, Mustafa told me that his house wasn't destroyed, so it wasn't destroyed in the first earthquake, so they decided to stay. Um, but, you know, given after, given all the aftershocks, uh, they are really scared. And one of them happened last Monday, that was a 6.4 magnitude. And here's what he told me about that night. I started to feel really scared, really afraid. We have to find a safer place. All of my relatives are now in, in their farms. Uh, Mustafa told me that um, a lot of people are now living in between their homes, if they're standing, uh, and their cars and tents and um, pitched outside in the open farmlands. Uh, he said some of the people spend their days in the home because they need you know, their bas basic stuff. Uh, and then they move outside uh, in the tents at night because um, they're scared that you know, an aftershock is going to happen at night when they're asleep. In fact, you know, your point about Mustafa's switch to really being citizen journalist is a reminder about the brutal civil war. Tell me a bit more about what you learned in your conversation with him about what life looks like now. Absolutely. This war has been going on for 12 years. That is a really long time. A lot of people in this part of the country have been displaced many times over and uh, Mustafa told me that Syrians in this part of the country are used to receiving death from the skies. He was referring to, you know, fighter jets dropping bombs. But he said what we didn't expect and never imagined was that the ground under our, our feet is also going to turn against yeah. us. Now, some of these families are in a more difficult situation because they have small children and it's really difficult for these families. I asked Mustafa how he has been talking with his children and how his children have been coping. They are don't know about scared anything. But actually, I'm scared about them because I have to protect them. I have to take them to safe places. When I feel aftershock, I carry them and go out of the house. Now, I know also, Sharon, the last time that you were with us here um, on The Takeaway, you spoke about the difficulty of, of being able to get aid into affected areas. I mean, we hear, um, hear from Mustafa about these challenges, and yet we also know that aid workers are, are having challenges. Have there been any meaningful um, inroads, infrastructure into these areas? Yeah, at the beginning, the aid was very slow to arrive. It took five days for the first aid to arrive in this part of the country, which has been uh, the most impacted. Um, uh, but now, when I talked to Mustafa, he said, you know, uh, it's been getting better. We've seen some reports of international aid getting through. Um, the European Union said this week that some aid has arrived in Damascus. International aid groups like uh, the World Food Program and also the United Nations have been on the ground and they have been distributing food and other necessities. Bashar al-Assad, the president, has allowed 
aid to cross into Turkey from the border, um, they've opened up a few other border crossings. At, at the beginning, there was only one that was open, that was allowed, but now there are a few more. Um, and he has also allowed aid to get into that part of the country through the south through the government held areas, uh, which is called cross line. This is when, you know, aid crosses the line between government held areas and into the opposition held areas. So we've seen uh, some of that happen. But when I asked Mustafa how he feels about aid and help coming from the Assad government, this is how he responded. He's killing us since 2011. And now they want to think uh, humanity. No, we don't. We don't need your help, okay? Just to stop your warplanes, stop your artillery from killing us, and we are good. Again, this war has been going on for 12 years, and people like Mustafa are really traumatized by this conflict. They say, you know, just leave us alone. At least let's not have the warplanes flying over us and, and bombing us, and then we can deal with the earthquake. By the way, he told me that some of these attacks have been going on even after the earthquake. So he says he re- what he really wants is for the fighting to end. All right, we're going to take a quick pause right here. We'll be back with more on the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria right after this. About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley. Why do you think you hesitated when we first met in telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance? It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart. I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sharon Jafari is a reporter covering the Middle East at The World. Turkey, um, which was the epicenter of this latest smaller quake, has not been in the midst of a brutal civil war, and yet we still see painfully slow government relief and rescue. What's happening in Turkey? Well, the search and rescue efforts have been stopped, and now the focus is on helping those who have survived to have shelter, to have food, to have a place to stay. You know, there's a lot of anger and grief about what happened in Turkey because a lot of these houses that were destroyed were sold to people as being earthquake safe. But as we saw, you know, a lot of them crumbled and they were not safe. And, you know, of course, a lot of people who paid for these houses and buildings are really upset and they want justice, they want answers. In the midst of this kind of human suffering, it it feels almost icky to talk about the politics, but there is a politics here. And Turkey's president is up for re-election. Do you have a sense of how um, this has affected the political situation in Turkey? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the elections are supposed to be held in June. There were some debates about whether Turkey should hold elections, given that, you know, this part of this part of the country has been impacted uh, so severely. There are questions about, 
you know, whether people can get to polling stations and an election can be held. Uh, but so far, it sounds like uh, Erdogan is determined to go ahead with, the, with these elections. And um, he has acknowledged that there were shortcomings at the beginning, shortcomings in terms of the government's response. And his critics have been seizing this moment to question his leadership. Um, a, a big part of that is that the government has issued over the years thousands of these so-called amnesties for buildings to be built without the required permits and standards. And um, Erdogan has been trying to push back against these uh, criticisms, and he has launched uh, you know, a temporary wage support program. Um, this is for people who lost their jobs uh, and, and businesses. Um, he has also banned layoffs in 10 cities that were most affected. Um, this is, again, to protect workers, and he has promised financial support for those uh, who have been uh, affected in the earthquake. And he said, we're going to rebuild as fast as we can. Turkey is going to rebuild. It's going to come back. So it seems like um, so far he's in damage control. Um, but like I said, uh, there's a lot of uh, anger and resentment. But, you know, having said all of that, this is not the first time that Erdogan faces major challenges as a president. You might recall that in 2016, he faced an attempted military coup. Mm. Um, he survived that coup, not necessarily by changing people's minds about himself, but by unleashing a huge crackdown on opponents and critics. But, you know, he he does what he needs to to survive. And we have to wait and see how he does this time around. Sharin Jafari is a reporter covering the Middle East at The World. Thank you so much for joining us again here on The Takeaway, Sharin. You're welcome.